Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. There's a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States of America. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today as we cover character, loyalty and leadership under arguably the harshest and most complex of circumstances and reflect on not just the individual but the nation as a whole. Our guest is Jeff Sengelman, DSC AMCSC, a retired Major General in the Australian Defence Force and today he is Chairman of Harvest Technology Group Limited. With a distinguished career spanning almost 40 years, most recently a Special Operations Commander Australia, where he was responsible for all Special Forces units operating in the most dangerous environments across the globe, he has been a trusted senior advisor to both government and the Chief of the Defence Force on security issues of national significance and a principal advisor on counter-terrorism. In this conversation, Jeff shares his personal reflections on character and leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. Please note that the views and opinions expressed by Jeff Sengelman in this podcast are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations he is involved with. So sit back and enjoy. Character is the foundation. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. You know, I had to reflect on why I was here today. Thank you for your invitation. And when I think about the things we're about to talk about and why, I think what comes to mind is that when you try and talk about good leadership and what it means, I really have come to believe that good things come from that. And so more than anything today, I want to try through some personal reflections and experiences to talk about good leadership, how to be better as leaders, because I think the audience and people everywhere, well, we're better for it when those things happen. And I'd like to invest in that if I could through you. Well, not just me, but I reckon... Every Australian out there is going to ask this very simple question. How are you? Are you okay? Thanks for the question, Greg. You know, times are a little difficult just now. The confronting outcomes of the war crime inquiry, my own thoughts about my career, my long role in special forces, and all of the memories that come with that percolate inside me when you ask me that question. Am I okay? How do I feel? 
Well, the first thing I think about is not myself. I'm actually thinking about mums and dads, especially of those soldiers who died in war. I'm thinking of Hugh and Janie Pote, their son Robert, who was killed in an insider attack along with two colleagues and some other Australian soldiers who were badly injured as well. I think of them sitting at home and how they feel just now, and I worry for them. Uh, I think about the soldiers that I served with and, and others I don't know, but as a general, maybe I should have, and that are maybe having difficult thoughts just now or have PTSD, and I worry for them. I, I think about them every day. I think about the soldiers now and their service and their belief in it and what they stand for and what this means for that. And those issues go through my mind and I want them all to know that, that I haven't stopped thinking of you. I think of you every day. I worry for you. But I also want you all to know that I understand, that I feel a degree of accountability for the issues that we're talking about, and that none of you have been ever forgotten or stand alone. And I want you to know that even though it feels difficult at the moment, perhaps confronting, I want you to know that we are going to stand with you, we will always stand with you, and it's going to be okay. Am I okay, Greg? I'll be okay if they're okay. I've read a little bit about you, Jeff. I'm sure everybody in Australia is or will be shortly. But let's put that to the side. That's people guessing. Can you tell us who you are? Where'd you come from? What did you set out to achieve? Okay, Greg, I tend to think of myself as coming from pretty humble origins. While I was born in Sydney, I was actually raised in Ipswich in Queensland. It's a uh, semi-rural property just one ridge away from the Ambly Air Base. I do remember as a kid when the Phantom Jets first turned up, I used to be able to stand in our backyard amongst the horses and watch the Phantom Jets fly in before they turned left and did their landing. Dad was a small goods distributor. Mum was a wonderful mother. I always knew that I was loved dearly. She taught calligraphy at a local TAFE at night and used to take me along with her. I've developed a love for calligraphy since then. A special relationship that comes to memory back then was the relationship I had with my grandfather. My grandfather actually lived in Ashfield here in Sydney. He lived in a government house. Back then, I was too young to have an opinion on whether it was a great house or a bad house or whatever. I just didn't think that way. But my grandfather was a veteran from World War II. He served in Bougainville. He never really spoke to me about the war, but I knew that he lost most of his fingers, I think on his left hand. And for me, what I remember is not stories of World War II or, or things like that. I remember the love in that house that they extended to me as a kid. And now when I reflect back that they actually had nothing, but in a way, they were the richest people in the world because of how tight they were with each other and the love they had. You know, my grandfather was a garbo for the Ashfield Council his whole life after the war, right? He served in the council. He did that job. And you know what? I'm proud of him. Anyway, I went on and I went to school in various places. Academically sharp? That's for others to judge, but I loved learning. And while I came from a 
a semi-rural background and perhaps was a little naive, especially as I went to high school and I got access to the library and another layer of teaching, I took to it like a duck to water. I just loved it. I loved it just for what it was, knowledge and insight. I was a kid that liked to dream about the future and what could be and all that sort of stuff, like a lot of kids do. And in that school, while I had positive memories, it was just a normal state school, Ipswich State High School. And I went there to school and I found myself in the final year and look, I was head of cadets, army cadets. I never tried to be head of cadets. I just ended there because I loved it. I was a deputy head prefect of the school. I was on the debating team. I even won a poetry award once for Southeast Queensland, which in hindsight is a little bemusing. But I guess what I'm saying is I love school and learning. I developed a lot, but I was still, I guess, a little timid, insecure about who I was and where I was going. But I did want to join the army. I think in hindsight, Greg, that maybe it was in part the influence of my grandfather, but also I had an uncle that I was too young to remember that was killed in the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam. All right, okay. And, you know, when I reflect upon that now, gee, I'm really proud of him too. He was a, a young Nasho. He went off. In later years, I actually met his commander who told me a little bit about it. And, you know, there is a painting of the Battle of Long Tan. I think many people may have seen it. And in that painting where the soldiers in the dark are confronting the attacking North Vietnamese army and bullets are flying everywhere, there is an image of a machine gunner up on a knee and that's my uncle. So I've got all those things going on in my mind and I'm a young kid at high school and I think I want to join the army and off I go. And I was going to apply and I meet one of my teachers and the teacher, you know, was talking me through my career and where I want to go and all that sort of thing. We come to the point about me joining the army and I said, where would you like to be? And I said, well, I think I'd like to join up and I'll go to Kapuka and be a soldier and see where it goes and all of that. And I still think that is a, a wonderful thing to do for all people who wish to serve the nation. But the teacher looked at me and said, well, Jeff, you've done pretty well at school. You seem to have some abilities here. Why don't you apply to become an officer? And it hadn't really struck me before. I hadn't seen myself in that light. It was a young skinny kid at Ipswich High School, you know, living out in the country. And that wasn't an aspiration that I thought I was worthy of. Didn't officers, you know, drink gin and tonics at the bar and talk differently? I, I, I just, I didn't think that was me. I mentioned some doubts to the teacher about it and he got really grumpy with me. And what he was angry about was that I was devaluing myself. And he gave me a talk on the spot. It wasn't a long one, but it was about believe in yourself and go for your goals. Don't ever, ever hold yourself back like that again and go forward. So I applied to join the army as an officer. I was subsequently going through the hoops, accepted into the officer cadet school at Portsea. I was the youngest ever entrant. I was the youngest ever graduate. And I was graduate number 3000 of that school. So my story began. Now, you know, Greg, years later, I come back to my grandfather, right? And I found myself on an operation in Bougainville in the South Pacific. I can't talk to you, mate, about some of the details of the operation, but I'll paint a scene. So we're in an aircraft, I think it was a caribou, and we're flying over 
Bougainville. Right? And I'm um, sitting there with some of my colleagues in the back and we're looking out the window and just reflecting on life. And a bullet hole appears in the fuselage in between some of the seats. As, as you do. As you do. <laughs> and by then I was in SAS and, of course, I was quite fascinated by that development. Right? But the thing I want to uh, point out here is that it wasn't until that moment you know, knowing I was going to Bougainville had, had occurred over several weeks prior. It was at that moment that I suddenly remembered, hey, this is where my grandfather served in World War II. Holy moly, here I am. I've joined the army. I've got through school. I have jumped through these hoops. I'm in special forces. And here I am back where he was at that time. And I don't know. I just felt a connection and it was powerful to me. It seemed right. So anyway, those are some of my beginnings. That's as much as you're going to get out of me anyway, Greg. Well, I don't know, Jeff. There's a lot of citations. There's a lot of letters. There's a lot of medals. Any chance you could share some or give us a bit more understanding? Where do those medals come from and what does it actually mean? I do have medals for the campaigns and, and the events I've involved in. However, I don't normally wear them now. I've retired and there simply isn't the opportunity. But one thing that occurred to me, Greg, and these are very personal reflections, I've had to ask myself, what do those medals mean to me? Because when I was a general and in the last years of my life, I would turn up in various settings with audiences and I'd be wearing all my medals and all my bling and, and you know, the more senior you are, the more like a Christmas tree you look. <laughs> and look, at one level, I'm not being derogatory of military service and the things we do. The point I'm trying to make is, is that this is about authentic leadership and you want people to see you for who you are, not the things that you're wearing. And I wanted my audience to listen to me as a person and to communicate on that basis. I didn't want the bias of my rank or my SF background or my medals or my letters to somehow predispose them to just agree with whatever I said or be swayed by those things. I wanted to communicate and lead authentically based just on who I was, on merit. What do I think now about it? I think that the medals I wear with the greatest pride are the ones you can't see. And those are the medals that are the mistakes in my life. I am who I am because of the mistakes I made and what I learned from them. I am who I am because of the people around me who understood when I made a mistake, who picked me up again, who guided me forward. In life, and for me, my greatest teachings and learnings were through mistakes. And I wish there were medals that talked about all the near misses or the cock-ups I made, the mistakes, the misjudgments, and I've got a few, right? They made me who I am. And I think it's important that we all learn to talk a bit more about that instead of hiding them behind a mask, because those are the authentic credentials that demonstrate truly who we are. Whether you're a mum or a dad, or a bloke at the pub, or a general or a prime minister, we're all human and we're all trying, we're all striving. We want to succeed. But if you're really trying, you're also making mistakes too. If you think you're in a life where you don't make mistakes, right, then you aren't trying hard enough. 
So those are the things I think matter most and I wish I could wear on my breast and others could see because those make me proud too. Now to the medals. It's an issue at the moment and our veterans, our soldiers, it's very important to them. I don't want to talk about technical procedural reasons for medals, but I will try and explain it this way and I hope it comes across. In my bedroom at home, on the side table beside my bed, is a little cardboard box. It's pretty shonky. There's a bit of plastic tape on it. It's techno-coloured and all of that. And in the bottom of that little box that can fit in my hand is a little piece of paper with the child drawing for my daughter who was three years old. And it just says, love you, daddy. And I use that box to just keep my coins by the bed. Now, you could fill that box with argyle pink diamonds and it would still not be worth more than that box means to me. What do the medals mean? At one level, Greg, I think they're just pieces of ribbon and tin. But to the soldiers, their memories, their sacrifices, they're meaningful. They talk of stories. They talk of mates. They talk of events. They talk of recognition, good times and bad. That's what they mean. That's what they are. And so when soldiers talk about their medals, it's in most cases not some grand desire to wear this stuff and look fancy or whatever. These are the things that matter as much to them as a sacred heirloom that might otherwise be valueless, but we've all got them at home, don't we? And this is what these are amongst all the other things too. And so for someone like me, if we talk about medals or any sort of recognition, because there's so many people in the world that, in my opinion, deserve medals, who do wonderful things every day, is to look at people for who they are, not just look at the medals and understand the difficulties and the journeys that they're going on and recognise it, see it for what it is, see the meaning in that otherwise worthless box beside my bed for what it actually means. Yes, it's a useless bit of cardboard, but yes, it means the world to me. And I would think that some of these medals have similar meaning for many veterans, and I respect that. And their families too, Jeff, doesn't it? Very true, Greg. A great point. A great point. It connects Australians with the past and the wonderful work of the War Memorial. These memories flow through society. It's not just pride, it's respect, it's memories. It it connects to our society and our culture. It's part of the fabric of who we are. It's all these things. And so it's a difficult question to answer, but it's a meaningful one too. I hope I've done a service to it, but Understanding these things before we dive into deeper issues, I think, matter. I do. 25 years old, you're awarded the Sandy Beret, or your past selection. During your career, Jeff, you finish up as the head of special operations. You must have been involved with more activity than any other Australian soldier, their leadership role, at a tempo that most couldn't believe. There's chief execs listening to this, there's CFOs, there's heads of ops, but they've never seen what you've seen. What is leadership? Okay, Greg, that's a a deep question. I guess my answer to that is multi-layered. Perhaps we can come back to it a little later. Leadership, in a way, for me at least, is about others. It's not about me. It's about we. 
And so those events you refer to, which are basically history and Australia's commitment to operations and special forces. What I tell you is, is that it's not what I did. It's actually about what was done. It was about the team, the team I was part of and proud of and the people in it, the amazing things I saw, the inspirational people I worked with, the sacrifices that were made, the loyalty to nation and to each other. You know, at the moment, with the confused events around the war crimes inquiry and some people feeling disappointed, perhaps doubting, or a whole range of emotions, then some might find it paradoxical that being a former senior leader and from that organisation, that I might actually say that I'm proud, despite what happened. I'm proud to say that I'm a former member of SAS. I'm proud of the people I served with and I remain proud. I am proud of the memory of the people that sacrificed and the families that are behind them. That pride will never go away. That doesn't distract in any way the gravity of the current circumstances in the war crimes and the need for justice to be pursued and for these events to be dealt with. But I think there's room in all of us to understand that you can chew gum and walk at the same time on these issues. And my pride and my belief in that unit and in special forces, in the Australian Army and in our Defence Force, absolutely remains strong. You know, there were many times when I felt that I was alone in the arena. I think it was Roosevelt that mentioned that. And in the arena, the thing that keeps you going is the belief in what you're trying to do and the people around you, that belief. Uh, we're in that arena now. Some things haven't gone well. There needs to be an accounting. People want to understand. And where justice is necessary, the people that are best at those things will do what is required. But I'm still standing with my team. I'm still in that arena. And someone mentioned to me about two months ago, Jeff, you must feel really vindicated about what's happened with the war crime inquiry. It was a well-intended statement. It was meant as, I guess, praise. But it caused me to reflect. And I said, well, Actually, I don't feel that at all. I feel like a parent who's had to take their loved son or daughter down to the police station because you realise they've some, done something really wrong. I feel like I've done the right thing and the necessary thing, not just because it's the law, but because I knew that that was the only way to end up in a good place afterwards for all of us. And even though I did the right thing, and everyone around me, when they knew the details, also did the right thing, then I guess like a parent or loco parentis, my love or my commitment to these people remains. I'm hurt, I'm confused too, but that doesn't mean that my belief in them and who they are as people or the belief that there will be redemption and positive things into the future now that we are taking this course is there. That's how I feel on the inside, Greg. It's a little confused, I know, but I'm being authentic here. I'm telling you that doing the right thing can sometimes feel really, really tough, mate. And I, I do wonder for the people that are listening to this podcast, whether you're on a board or you're a chairman or you're a general or whether you're a school teacher and you're just in the room and inspiring young kids like I was once, then why is it 
that doing the right thing seems to have become so difficult. And doing the wrong thing seems to have become easier than it should. And if leaders want to try and respond to some of these issues better, given society and the challenges that are emerging on a daily basis for all of us, it would be to reflect, let's find better ways to create climates in the workplace that make it easier to do the right thing and a little harder to do the wrong thing. Let's work at that. I don't know what all the answers are, but it shouldn't have to be this tough. Now, there are two ways, I think, to influence people. You can manipulate them or you can inspire them. Manipulation can sometimes be easy. It can sometimes inspire in us emotional responses to take the easy win, the bird in the hand. But manipulating people, unless anyone's confused out there, is not a positive mindset, especially if you're a leader. It doesn't ever, in my experience, lead to a positive place. Inspiring people, that's what makes people great. That's what makes people believe in each other. That's what makes people want to do more than just their job, just their duty. And value comes from inspiration. Workforces and teams, if they believe and they're inspired, will achieve great things. Value for the company, value for the reputation, greater competition, greater resilience in the difficult times. Building teams, inspiring people through leadership that is respectful, understanding, compassionate, honest, as in always being prepared to admit mistakes, and always having at the heart of it a sense of goodwill that you're working together towards a shared positive outcome. If you can generate those feelings and that trust between people, then actually you can do amazing things. I had many great privileges to work with inspirational people in my life, and one of them was a general called Stanley McChrystal, and he wrote a book called Team of Teams. I served with General McChrystal in Afghanistan, or at least met him there. I worked with him in Iraq. And while I can't or won't talk in detail about the things that we were doing at the time, what I would tell you is, is that his leadership was inspirational, not because he believed in inspirational leadership, because he was heading on behalf of the United States a global counterterrorism mission that we're all participating in. Disaggregated teams in different time zones doing some incredible stuff. And the thing that connected us all was a belief in our mission and the character of the leaders that were leading it. So on leadership, you talk about that. Can I just touch on that word character? Because I think character is like the foundation of a house. And if you've got a firm foundation, then you can build all sorts of things on those. But if your foundation is shonky or built on sand, then no matter the amazing edifice you wish to erect to yourself for your purpose, it will always be fragile. Blow over in the wind, wash away in the tide, look a little unstable when times get tough. In leaders, character is the foundation. And while I appreciate that when we look at people and whether we want them to be on our team and we put them through a selection process, often it's like looking at a CV. 
what are all the things this person has done, all of the attributes, and CVs are worthy. They are. But I've come to the opinion that actually, especially for senior leaders, it's about character. And not a lot of CVs talk about character. And I now think that we should be talking about the eulogies of our life, the meaningful things that we've done that make people around us feel differently, that inspire others, that say that the character we have is worthy of the responsibility of leadership. And so when I look at people now, I look past the bits of paper they put in front of me, right, or the medals on their chest, and I want to look inside them. And like an SAS selection course that attempts to get to the real person, I want to say, who are you and what sort of character have you got? And if the answer is you're of good character, then my belief is, as a leader, I can do anything with you. I can take you to the pinnacle of the earth or the most difficult missions of the world. If you do not have good character, then it will be a difficult road ahead for both of us, fought every step of the way with a degree of doubt and concern. And that's not what you want. Now, on leadership, I've mentioned that this is more to me about giving and sacrifice, right? In that context, I think that leadership for me now is more about helping the people around you to be the best that they could be. That can involve education, it can involve inspiration, it can involve support, it can involve building teams of teams of other leaders who do the same and the like. It's, it can be complicated and layered and many faceted, but at the end of the day, most organisations, their greatest asset is their people and how effective their people are, their talent, their entrepreneurialism, their knowledge, their abilities the way they work together, the way they trust, the pride in their organisation and going forward, that in intellectual property terms for most firms is the substance of who they are. Now, those people in those organisations quite often are individually amazing people in their own right. But when a leader comes in and shows them how to work together and become more than who they are, that's when you get this team of teams effect. And possibilities open up. And the key possibility with good leadership built on good individuals and anchored in character is that you become greater than the sum of your parts. Every leader, in my opinion, should be investing heavily in those climates and their people so that they are greater for the sum of their parts, not because it's the right thing to do, although I think it is, but the value that is realized from that is orders of magnitude beyond a workforce that is simply turning up to transactionally get their paycheck whenever it is that that check is paid. In special operations, which we operate in small teams, we take wonderful Australians, just like you and I, yeah, they're a little special, but their specialness is actually the character on the inside. And those people become greater than who they are because of the teams they're in and the people around them. Now, we can talk separately and later about how that can sometimes go wrong, right, and why. But let me step from that and offer that war is a difficult thing. There's a lot of complexity in it. I appreciate that everyone has an opinion on it, and I do respect those opinions. I, and certainly I understand them given the moment. However, I think 
I'm more attracted at the moment to reflect and think deeply on all the facets of what that word means. War and what it asks of people and and what it does to people. Leaders, nations, governments and soldiers. And while there are thousands of books that are written on this topic, I will tell you that the romance of war being some sort of wonderful thing where great things happen is not the war I knew. War is not a nice place, but people put in difficult situations can do some amazing things in those circumstances. I'm uh, drawn to uh, remember or at least paraphrase a quote from Ernest Hemingway. And uh, back then he said, I have known war and I hate it, but there are worse things and they all involve failure or defeat. What do I mean by that comment? Well, in part, unless you've walked in the shoes of those that have been in those places, generals, commanders, or troopers, then at least let's reflect and think about, do I know all the details and how do I understand better before I form an opinion, right? And help me understand what happened and why. And I hope that our government and our Defence Force at the moment is on to that job, is helping Australians to understand, okay, what happened and why? Help us to understand. If we're at the dinner table at home and someone's dropped some terrible news on the table, we're in a bit of shock at the moment. Something shocking has happened. Mum has run from the table crying. Dad's looking at the floor. He can't believe what he's just heard. Everyone's upset. It's not what we're expecting. It's difficult but they're still family. They still love each other. They're still deeply upset though. And in the next phase, I think, is we need to understand. Understanding is in itself a first step into redemption, forgiveness, rebuilding. And when you're talking about war and sometimes the terrible things that ask from us or does to us, then we do want to understand, don't we? more about this. Why do we want to understand? We want to understand because we care. We're talking about a topic that we care about, not just me as a general, all of us. Something's happened in the family. It's shocked us. We're not stepping away from confronting it. We're stepping into it, but we care. If any veteran or any family member or anyone that's got any connection to our defence forces and what they did, please don't ever count or doubt that we care. We care, despite things being difficult at the moment. And I know that the leaders of the nation at the moment care deeply too, and we are charting a course on how we move through this the right way, as Australians, as a nation, but also with the empathy and the compassion and the understanding for all of the individuals involved. And that's what I think Australians expect too. We want to deal with the truth. We want to understand the story behind it. Where justice needs to be done that may involve the police or the courts, then those are matters for them to work out, not for me. And we just want to know that the right things are being done for organisations and people that we care about and that if any mistakes were made, that we have learnt from them and that we are better for it at the end of this. And as a leader now, even though I'm retired, Greg, that's where I'm leading, right? It's not my job anymore to make decisions within the Defence Force about how they're dealing with those details. Those are quite rightly matters for the people who currently hold those appointments. 
I'm part of the team on the outside that cares, that wants to be a positive actor in the redemption program through learning and understanding and supporting our people in whatever large or small way I can. That's where my place is by now and that's what I need to focus. You know, on Thursday last week when the war crime issue emerged, it was shocking, the report and everything about it. And I don't want to talk in more detail about it just now, Greg, but perhaps a little later. Just now what I'll say is could I remind you and everyone else that this did not happen last Thursday. That was simply the inquiry coming forward. We first found out about this, at least in the detail that triggered the inquiry, five years ago. When we found out about it, it was people from within special operations who told the stories, not outsiders, people inside. Our own people came forward and shared those stories. The details of who shared what with who at what time will come out later. Could I suggest it doesn't really matter? Let's just say that five years ago, a choice was made and a whole lot of people came forward and started to tell their stories. Some of them told stories to journalists. Some of them told stories to contractors. Some of them told stories to me. Some of them told stories to others. A choice was made and our own special operations community called themselves out and came forward. Now, let me tell you about one story of that time. I don't want to talk about more. It directly involves me, so I feel I can touch upon it. I was at a point very early in my tenure as the commander of Special Operations Australia. I had seen a fair amount of evidence that is now on the record that things weren't right. There were disciplinary misdemeanours, there were administrative problems, there were reports of alcohol issues and health issues and a whole raft of others. And as a commander, I knew that these were indicators that something was wrong. I was asking myself, how could people that were the best of us, that I knew were the best of us, be exhibiting these signs? This was an indication that, that their health wasn't right, right. And I knew enough from these indicators to ask myself, I have to look for the cause here. What is going on? Now, back in those early days, these weren't stories about war crimes. These were just commander doing his job, caring about doing it properly. And so I'm in there and I'm looking at it and there was a huge dissonance between what I was seeing, the objective evidence of the circumstances, and what I was or was not being told as a leader about what was really going on. And I reached a point as a leader when I knew that if I couldn't elicit from my own soldiers the truth, and if I didn't have a relationship with them that believed enough in me to at least tell me their stories about what they thought was going on, then actually the very foundations of my position as a SOCOST, my unwritten contract as a leader, would be held in some doubt. And so I knew I had to try something different. And working on intuition, I brought in the bulk of the members of the regiment into a single room, and I asked them to tell me their stories. But I asked them in a way that encouraged them to believe in me. And so I expressed my concern about what was going on and why. And I invited them to each write me a letter to tell me honestly what was going on in their own words. And my undertaking to them was, provided you don't raise any criminal issues, because I have no authority 
to handle those, they must be passed to the authorities. Provided they were administrative concerns, then I would respect the privacy of the private letter they sent to me and that individual and myself will deal with each other and resolve those issues. While I wasn't seeking to grandstand at the moment, I felt I needed to put my reputation on the table. And what I put on the table was, right, and if I breach that trust, if you find out that I've ever shown those letters to another, I'll resign my commission. Now, I don't have a commission to resign anymore, but the trust I sought in that day and the strength of my undertaking remains as strong. And I don't know what I'd do if such a doubt were to emerge, but those letters were never shown to another. They have been destroyed. I responded to each individual personally and returned their original letter back to them to do with whatever they would. And what those 209 letters told me, because they were emotional, they were raw, many of them were expressing sadness and regret about what had happened, but it told me that a significant number of the senior leaders in that unit were prepared to trust me. It told me that they had made a choice to start to talk, that they wanted change and they wanted change for the better. And with those things, I knew in that moment that we could carry this through. Now, I'll tell you in the five years that's occurred since then, they have been tough years for special operations. Why have they been tough? Well, I'll assure you there is no tougher leader on these matters than they had in me at that time. Perhaps if I have any regret, perhaps I was a little too tough on my organisation at the moment. But for a moment there, and with the lessons and the stories that I'd been told, I did, for a fleeting moment, think that we were the metaphoric equivalent of the Titanic just about to hit the iceberg. And so I grabbed the wheel and I pulled a hard right, or whatever the naval term is for that. And it was an emergency turn. And in the turning, we missed the iceberg, but we lost a lot of bark in the turning. But we turned and we were still afloat at the end of it. And the story of the last five years in special operations is actually about how we held ourselves to account, the things we've done to change the organisation, to address the cultures, to change the mindsets. And we were really tough on ourselves. Those aren't the stories that have come out yet, but when Thursday happened last week, there was regret and remorse. There was disappointment and shock. But so command to a degree has been living with those things for five years and working hard and try to come through it. Now, there's no excuse in that, no offer or suggestion of any special treatment or belief, only that we called ourselves out and then we tried our best to hold ourselves to account. And I do believe that the reason we are here where we are today is not because any one person blew a whistle or did one thing better than another, but collectively the organisation decided to act. And if in a small way I played a role in that in their leader, it was in my attempt to convince them by creating a climate that says it's okay to talk. They did all the work. They told the stories. They talked to Barrington. And they have a deep conviction in wanting to move through this and to be better. And if redemption is possible, to re-earn their reputation with the people of Australia and to the international communities of the world and show them that while we may have lost our way and some may have faltered, that we can be redeemed.
And I want you to know I actually believe in that. I know these people. That is true. It's going to be hard. It's not over yet. There are many years ahead. But we are on the journey to doing that. And I think their foundations are strong. There are many good characters there. And from that character, we are rebuilding. And I think we can redeem them. So on leadership and broadly from that, Greg, why don't I I lean into this and offer you some stories more broadly about insights and I. I'm not trying to be too cute here for your listeners, but maybe there's some lessons in this and perhaps they're worthy. Yeah, because you don't operate in a normal nine to five job, do you? Well, I didn't. You know, at the moment, I still get chastised by my wife if I don't mow the lawn or take the (laughs) bins out in time. So those are concerns in my risk matrix of my current life, right? But you, you know, you ask, oh, Jeff, what have you been doing since you got out? And well, you know, reinventing myself a bit, Greg, but one of the things I fell into is I'm currently chairman of a small group called Harvest Technology. It's uh, based in Western Australia. Look, I'm not self-promoting, but you know, the young MD of that came to me and said, would you like to be chairman of the group? And originally I declined. He was probably a bit surprised. And he came back at me three more times. Uh, in fact, he flew across from Western Australia to Perth and met me at the Hyatt Hotel in Canberra. And then the end, he convinced me, right? He convinced me because I could see that he was a person of character. He wanted to do the right thing and he had a vision. And I thought, okay, Jeff, this is what leadership is. Forget about the word chairman or what the Corporations Act means and all that. What I think he and, and Harvest want me to bring to the team is a little bit of who I am and what I am. Leadership, support, inspiration, understanding and confidence. I've learned a lot in the last six months and, and the paint's new on me as a, as a chair. It's a listed company and I'm doing all these things for the first time but having a great time, Greg. So much of what I'm doing at the moment is analogous to what I was doing as a general. In various appointments, I've managed budgets larger than $5 billion. I've digitally transformed the army over a couple of years for a program that was in excess of $2 billion. Uh, I've commanded tens of thousands of troops and helped coordinate a quarter of a million of them in the middle of the war. I've sit on committees, I've advised prime ministers, I've briefed presidents. I've done an amazing sort of stuff up at that level that I'm finding in many respects translates really well into this setting. Sure, a different facet or outlook, but the commonality that comes across is really incredible. So about four weeks ago, I had to run my first annual general meeting. And I know how to run a meeting, right? But I'd never run an AGM before. And I had to listen to the advice I was getting around me about Jeff, uh, there's a certain way to do it. And by law, you must do it this way, right? And and which was nice code for do it this way or we're going to beat you on the back of the head. (laughs) And those things resonate with me. So we had the AGM and it was through Zoom and I hadn't met any of the shareholders before or the institutional investors. And I get that as the chair, you represent them in a way. You're the leader they're, they're depending upon in that setting. And Sure, they want you to be part of an effective business that's doing what it's meant to do, but they actually want to know who you are and they want to know your character. They know the market moves up and down and the world is a little uncertain just now. But more importantly, they want to know, are you of good character? Can we believe in you, mate? 
is what you're saying and doing the right thing? Are you holding people to account? Are you encouraging them to comply with the Corporations Act? Are you doing all the things you need to be done? But most importantly, can we believe in you? And are you taking this to where we all want to go? And so at that AGM, I, I gave a small talk. I was a little worried it may not translate well, given my background, but I just talked about trust and belief, vision and purpose and what we're trying to do. And I gave them a solemn undertaking that I would do my very best to represent them the right way and take this company forward. And we got a pretty good response to that. What's my message out of this, Greg? Uh, whether an AGM is 100 people in the room or 10,000, it's about leadership. The other stuff, in my opinion, is important, but just a little below that. If you're of good character and you are leading, you're doing all the right things and the best that you can do, then that instills confidence in people. That's that inspirational leadership. And shareholders want it as much as soldiers do. In an era where so many people are given reason to doubt their leaders, where it seems that every week in the newspapers there's a story that makes us worry about the character of some people in a positions of authority may not have been up to the task. Well, the value of just belief and trust and good leadership, the fundamentals of these things, I'd like to think that that has increased. And we now know the cost of when you don't have it. And that's what I'm trying to bring here, just the fundamentals of being a good leader, trying my best and operating with integrity. And I hope it leads me well because it's led me throughout my career so far. So if I can, let me plug into a story that might build some momentum in those things. You know, as a chair, I've got a board and on the board, we're a team and I'm trying to build that team. I've got the executive below and I've got a relationship with them. I understand the creative tension between the two and how that can be a real positive. It's manual. I understand my obligations to the shareholders. I will tell you that the oldest retiree that might only have $1.50 in two shares in the company, the meaning of that investment and those shares matter as much to me as the biggest investor in the company, right? I know what a mum and dad and when they've given you their most important investment in the world to take responsibility for means. It might mean nothing to some people, but it means something to me. And so when you lead or you're given the privilege of being a leader and leading soldiers is an amazing privilege, but also leading a company that is accountable to shareholders is in a way a similar privilege. People are putting their investment in you and their faith in you and you have to respect that. And you've got to look at it through their eyes. And, and that's what I'm trying to do, uh, to do now. But things don't always go well or right, and there are challenges. And so... You must have had a few of those. Well, I've certainly had some stories, and maybe a couple of these, Greg, will give you some, some insights. So there's an operation in the Middle East. I don't want to talk about what year and, and where, but this did happen. And... I'm watching a crossroads in a place and it's in the middle of a battle against an adversary. I don't command the battle, but this is a story about what I saw. It's all been reported and, and like. 
But there is a requirement because the bad guys, the Al-Qaeda in this case, were in a building. They were a threat on the ground. They were refusing to surrender and the building needed to be targeted. You do all the things you do before you use force. And those checks and balances are pretty strict, by the way, Greg. And a bomb was dropped. doesn't matter what type of bomb and, and what platform, but a bomb was dropped to target the house. Everything around that targeted building looked empty. And I kid you not, five seconds before that bomb struck the house, a group of people ran across the street from an opposite building. I don't know why they did it at that moment, but they did. From memory, I, I think there was a male, two females, and three kids, small kids, hold the hand sort of kids. And they ran across the street, and just before the bomb struck, they ran in through the front door of the house that was being targeted. There was nothing that could be done. Right? At least that's my view. It wasn't our mission. It wasn't an Australian mission either. It wasn't our platform that dropped the bomb or anything like that. The story I'm telling here is about an incident and an image in a big complex war. And the message I'm trying to say here and the silence that filled the room when you saw this, because our surveillance footage was good, was that sometimes despite the fact that you do everything right to try and make things work, right, you tick all the boxes, you take all the precautions, sometimes things just still go terribly wrong. Right? And it seems to me that teams and what they do when things go terribly wrong is as important as anything else. And for boards or for groups that operate together and have leadership responsibility, all too frequently when things go wrong, people run for cover or talk about blame or get defensive, right? My view is, is that is when teams step up. That's when they come together. When they don't throw people under the bus, they go, we are the team that's responsible for this. How do we work together to do the right thing? What is it that we have to do? And let's get on with it. Right? And when I do talk occasionally to senior leadership groups and boards, I invite them to spend more time looking to the people on their left and right and building relationships of trust and respect so that when things aren't going well, and let's face it, we all have those days, that's when you want the people to come around and support you. But also those positive climates and environments are the conditions that encourage people to do the right thing. And isn't that what we're trying to do? And so in war, Lots of terrible things happen, and many of those things are beyond our control, and yet we still need to get up in the morning and continue with the mission. We have to reflect upon the meaning of these things. We have to learn our lessons. We have to work together, and if possible, try and be better to avoid similar things happening again. It's as important on a battlefield as it is in a boardroom, and even though I still occasionally think about that young family and the horror of war, I wish that was a rare story, but at least in my experience, it's not. And that's why I believe that defence forces and people that are involved in such things have to abide by the law of armed conflict, have to be morally and ethically anchored and have to always be trying to do the right thing, not because we never wish to make mistakes, 
or some days might terrible things might happen. But because we need to know when we pick up our compass in the morning and said in which direction does this point, it needs to point to let's try and do better and let's try and do the right thing. Whatever that means in someone's mission or vision statement or job statement. There was a time when I was in Baghdad and I was working for General Petraeus. And I do understand that, you know, he's gone on to do many things, but the General Petraeus I knew was a four-star general and he was in charge of all forces in Iraq during the period called the surge. And I will tell you that when I turned up, the battle hung in the balance. We were not sure, if I'm able to talk on behalf of my leaders that way, we were not sure then about which way it would go. It didn't last for long, but for a few months, we did wonder whether we would hold this together. The chaos on the ground, the violence that was at stake, not so much against our forces, but on Iraqi. There were so many different groups that it was difficult to identify who was fighting who and what their motives were in a suburb, in a street, in a region, in a town, in a compound. We, at a moment, wondered if we really knew what was going on. We were in a maelstrom of violence. We were trying to do a mission that was basically to bring stability to the nation so that things could follow on behind. Good governance, politics, stable conditions, investment, but we needed to deliver a degree of stability first. Now, I'm not going to get into a strategic argument about whether we should be there or not. Those are matters for people other than me. But I will say that in that moment and working as part of that team and in that battle, those were difficult times. A colleague of mine, Jim Mullen, who's currently in government, he would probably know what I'm talking about in terms of that scale. Over a quarter of a million troops on the ground, a battle across a nation, extreme violence, chaos was underway. You know, sometimes people talk as if you can be in control. Here's what it feels like to me as a commander. It's taking off your flotation device. It's jumping into a white water rapid, right? And then being tossed around and, and smashed on rocks and saying, where's your vision statement and where's your synchronization matrix for what is going on? Can you please, you know, take control of your circumstances? What you are is you're leading in chaos. And you don't step away from that responsibility. But the reason I think we have defence forces in nations that maintain professional defence forces is that they are optimised for conditions like that. These are not normal. The normal rules have already broken down. There's often not rationality on the ground. There is hatred. There is not a desire to understand. There is a desire to misunderstand. Clarity is rare influence or manipulation is normal. And in those conditions, you need to take a force and try, somehow try and establish a degree of predictability and stability that leads to better things, or at least attempts to deliver those conditions. And so it's, it's tough. It's toughest on the ground when you're a soldier and you're immersed on this. And in my time there in Baghdad, I was the Director of Strategic Operations for General Petraeus. So what does that actually mean? What it meant was I was an embedded Australian officer in a coalition headquarters that was led by an American general, and I was uh, playing a role in the operational side to coordinate the overall operations across the theatre, across the nation. There were many layers, thousands of people, 
lots of responsibilities, I was part of a team. I was answering to my commander within that role. And so I'm working on that. And there was lots of ups and downs in that mission, by the way. I won't dwell on it too much here, but once a week, sometimes once a fortnight, I used to walk across the road from where the headquarters was in the, uh, in the palace there. And that's where the helicopters used to come in, day and night, all the time, at least at that time. Gunfire was a constant in the background. You learned to sleep just with these background noises being coming normalised. And the helicopters were often bringing in soldiers or, or service personnel that had been injured, that needed to be stabilised or triaged before being evacuated to Germany or somewhere better to do that. And with my immediate commander, a United States two-star general, we occasionally used to go across and just visit some of those troops. It's what you do. We were worried about that, but it also put a human face on the war because without that, my war was through a command centre and a huge video screen. And so by realising the sacrifice and the consequences of these things each and every day, you realise the importance of what you're doing. They were not statistics. These were humans in the most atrocious of circumstances, in many cases struggling for their very survival. And not just coalition soldiers, plain Iraqis and their families, right? And even now I have trouble visiting a hospital because of the smell that it triggers. I'm not going to overplay the memory of it, but some of those injuries were horrible and it's unpleasant, that sort of thing. There is one story I'd like to tell because I think it's a worthy one. There was a mission that came in one night to target a building. A high-value individual was in the building. The people that track these things have been working on it for months. And finally, this individual had been located with high confidence in this location. And the approaches to it were so dangerous that it wasn't the thing you could send troops in on the ground without it getting really, really ugly. It was in a city where people were living and no one wanted that sort of collateral. So the preference was is to drop a bomb or a missile on it and somehow take it out. And a lot of work had been done to work up the target package for it. How do we get at this target? And it's a very, very detailed program. And I am, this night, it was early evening and I'm sitting there. These were 18-hour days in a long war. And more happened in a day there than I think in most of my days ever anywhere else. And so you get a target package and the target packages that came through me, there weren't many, but they needed the boss, General Petraeus's approval or clearance, or sometimes he had to go even higher. So I only got to see the really serious ones. And I looked at this one here and I think I was only meant to be some technical tick in the box sort of as it made its way because there weren't many Australians embedded in that job. In fact, up in that area, there weren't any others. And so I get this package and I read it and I'm doing my due diligence and it's been signed off by a whole ton of people who I deeply respect and are very more senior than me and all of that. It's a very important target. It meets the criteria. And there's a picture of the school from overhead and a series of circles around it. And those are the, the calculations of how much damage would occur based on different types of weapon strikes on the target. The whole question is, is that how can we target this building with as little damage as possible or threat to the people around it and still achieve our outcome? And the more risk that was involved in the mission, the higher up the command chain it needed to go for approval, right? 
it happens and tough calls sometimes need to be made. And this particular one was of a nature that it needed to go to the boss for at least consideration. So I get the target package and it's clear life. Everything's on there, all the ticks. I'm the last check on it. I'm more like a staff officer and I read through it. I'm doing it. And I'm seeing that actually across the road from it is a school. And back then, a lot of the kids who were bereft of parents or for whatever reasons actually lived in the schools. They had nowhere else to go. And so the intel said, it's possible that children would still be living in the school. I don't think we knew, but it was possible. And some of the circles of the potential bomb damage calculation seemed to overlap the school. And I was looking at it, and now this is a difficult balance, and these are choices about leaders, and this is hard. Do you go after this person who had done some terrible things, who was a major leader in that war, and had met all the criteria to be taken out like this, legally and actually. That point wasn't in doubt. And it doesn't come up that often either, does it? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And so I was looking at this and going, I was listening to a voice in my head, and it's the voice that I call the voice of grace. It's that five to 10 seconds when everyone around you is saying, do this this way, it's, this is what you need to do. Each of us on the inside has this voice of grace and it says it might be legal, it might be desirable, it might even be necessary, but is it the right thing to do? And I sat there and I thought, is this the right thing to do? We were at that stage trying to earn the hearts and minds. We were trying to dial down the violence. We didn't want collateral damage. We, we didn't want it. And I saw this and I said, there's some potential here. And so I did something I felt really, really bad about. You know, this comes back to this point about it being hard to do the right thing. I agonized for 30 minutes staring at this package. And then I wrote, basically, I disagreed with the package. And I knew I was disagreeing with a ton of people. And off it went into the boss. Now, the system must have been tracking this document pretty closely because within about 30 seconds of me doing that and it going in, there was all sorts of pull it back, change it, red alert, red alert. Anyway, it went to the boss and I heard nothing about it. But I knew that a whole bunch of people probably weren't very happy with me for a range of reasons. Right? I will tell you that the mission did not proceed. About three days later, it was, I think, a Saturday morning. We used to have a conference and all the senior generals of the war, the most senior ones, used to come around. And I was the only foreigner at the meeting. And there was Petraeus there, there was McChrystal there, there was only Erno there. Now, if you follow the American literature, these are senior leaders, amazing commanders, did incredible things. And I hold enduring respect to each and every one of them. And I was sitting in this meeting I'd been worried a little bit about this and I thought mm, they'd sidelined the young Aussie brigadier who maybe got a little bit out of his depth and, you know, I was feeling a bit isolated. Now, those were echoes in my mind. No one had said anything to me, but this is often how it goes at the top. And so the meeting starts, General Petraeus is back and then it still causes a lump in my throat. I won't say who, but one of the general stood up and said, Jeff, I just want to officially apologize for the position we put you in the other night. We understand it was really difficult. 
and that you actually did the right thing. And that's all he said. And then all the other generals stood up. They said nothing. They just looked at me. And I felt like I wanted to crawl under the table. It was, I felt a little embarrassed at the attention and what they'd done. But it wasn't until afterwards that I thought about it. I thought, what an amazing act of humility to admit a mistake to a bloke they probably didn't need to admit anything to, to have learned from that. Boy, that was an act of inspirational leadership to me that powerfully affected me. I reckon it's the other way, Jeff. I reckon you showed them the inspiration. Perhaps that too. Seriously, they were saluting you, weren't they? Doing the right thing. But back then, I was trying to do my best for the mission. This is all about judgments. Some you get right, some you get wrong. And I made a call that night. I knew it was a tough call. It would have been so easy to tick the box and say yes, as I'd done many times before. So easy. Everything was lined up to do that. All of the advice and support was 95% anchored towards saying yes to target packages where the criteria is approved. But that voice of grace in our heads that says, is this the right thing to do? Those are things that we only carry, each of us, on our insides. You know, if I reflect on this, everyone out there that's listening, could I encourage you all as leaders, no matter where you are, when you're faced with difficult decisions like this, just give those 10 seconds and ask yourself, is this the right thing? And it might only make a difference occasionally, but it will make a positive difference. If you're a leader in a key position and have accountability, often organizations will be lined up on how to demonstrate a profit or how to get a share price to increase or how to do whatever KPI represents success in the organization. And so occasionally decisions will emerge where actually ethical and moral factors are at the table and the character of a leader needs to have the courage or the strength to just take that internal 10 seconds of reflection and ask, is this the right thing to do in whatever circumstance you find yourself in? I wish I'd done that more in my life. I've learned to do it a lot more now. It was a powerful lesson to me. And you know, every time I've actually come out and said, I actually think this is the right thing to do, and I've had trepidation that I might be excluded or punished or whatever, can I tell you this? I've always been rewarded with a supportive, positive response. Now, I'm not naive. I know in life it's not that perfect, but each and every time I've done it, my commander or my leader has stopped to listen and been appreciative of what I was trying to do. Back to the war crime inquiry, whatever the details at the beginning, when I found that I had a problem and I was struggling with the scale and the nature of it in those very early days, what did I do once I decided that this was an issue I needed to try and do the right thing on? I just went to my leaders and I sat down with them and I just spoke to them like people. And I said, here's my problem. And I was authentic and I just offloaded to them and the issues I had going on in my mind. And in one of those early moments, it was the chief of the defense force, Mark Binskin, and my chief of the army, which was General Campbell. And I could not have asked for more understanding and compassionate individuals who saw through my angst and my difficulty, who knew this was a big problem and difficult, but nevertheless gave their moral 
and actual support to me and encouraged me to keep doing what I was trying to do. And that's a positive story too. You've got the operators who are calling themselves out and you've actually got the leadership who, well, we were all confronted by the dimension and, and the implications of this. It, in many respects, it almost went beyond us, but we decided to do the right thing. And when the facts were laid out, everyone chose well, everyone chose right. And so as confronting as the war crime issue is at the moment, and as valid as the conversations are around it, can I ask all Australians and all leaders out there to also understand that we called ourselves out and our leaders, when they became aware of these matters, did the right thing. And if you're talking about character, moral leadership, courage, well, this is also a story about those things too. And let's not forget that because I don't. And I wouldn't be where I am today and being quoted as the role I played unless those soldiers had trusted me and had agreed to talk, had believed in my undertaking to support them, and that my leaders hadn't supported me and made the right choices. Let me, I guess, start to finish now. I do realise you might want to ask me some other questions at the end here, Greg, but let me finish on a story that... I guess matters to me, and it's a story about a mother, a mother who I stood with um, at Richmond Air Base several years ago. I was a general then, not in special operations at that posting, but I was the senior leader present, and I was with this mother. On a C-17 and returning home from theatre, there was a single casket, and it held the body of her son. And people talk to me about command and leadership and accountability and the burden of it and the things. And I will tell you that there are few occasions where that burden feels heavier than in moments like that. The ramp ceremonies in theatre when their colleagues uh, depart is equally as sorrowful and meaningful and, and difficult. And I'm standing there with a the mother the room's pretty crowded. There's lots of people here ready to go. The event will be conducted with dignity. The casket will be escorted off the back of the plane. Troops will be there. We will recognise the valour and the meaning of the individual appropriately. But my mission is there with the mother. I'd never met her before. I did not know her son. But I was representing the Army, the ADF, and all of you. And I'm standing there with her and we had been chit-chatting before. And I realised that, and these are my words, she didn't say them, but I realised that she still held some small hope that we had made a mistake, identified the wrong person. Because for her, it was still unreal. The last time she saw her son, he was a young, vibrant, amazing young man doing incredible things a love so unconditional that, that only a parent can really understand. And for her, it was still surreal and unreal. She was quiet. She was dignified. She was thankful for the sport around her. But in a way too, she was in another universe and I understood it. And so we reached the point where the small talk didn't matter anymore and it trickled off into nothing. And then we got word that the aircraft was on final approach and we moved forward to the glass. The troops were out on the tarmac ready to 
escort the casket in. And we looked back through the glass towards the small speck in the sky of the C-130 as it started to manifest in the heavens. And that three or four minutes of that final approach was honestly the longest in my life. God knows what it felt like for her. And we were standing there and watching it come in, right? And all she did is she just at, at one point reached out and just grabbed onto my sleeve and held on tight, painfully tight. She didn't need to say anything. This aircraft was basically truth and reality coming in to confront her, right? This breakwater moment where the actuality of what had happened and the loss of her son was about to confront her. She probably didn't want that aircraft to land. She was at that moment absolutely in a world of her own. All I could do was stand there silently and respect that. But no more powerfully ever in my life have I felt the burden of command and accountability and what it means. When we command on operations, whether we're a corporal or a general, and people talk about command in the military, and some say, oh, well, that's pretty simple and easy. You get all this power and authority and soldiers have to do what you say. So it's not really the leadership that we're used to on the outside. I understand that, but I don't think it's well-informed. The command and the leadership I saw and I've experienced that I know my people have is actually a burden. It's a sacrifice. It's an obligation. It's accountability. It's an unwritten contract that we all believe in. If I stop to think about those unwritten contracts that bind us, you know, why do we go to war and risk our lives in situations like this? What holds us together in those circumstances that any normal sane person may not normally wish to subordinate their democratic rights as an individual to do so? One of them is, is that if they fall on the field of battle, that we will fight to regain their remains and we will bring them home with dignity and we will look after their family forever. The second one is, if one of us is lost or taken, that we will spare no effort to find them and recover them. No one left behind. And the third one in my mind is the one of accountability. I don't think it's written anywhere but I've always believed and the people that work for me believed that a commander is accountable for all that their command does or fails to do. Sure, you may not have been responsible for an incident or physically done it yourself, but you are also accountable as their leader. You are not just their leader or commander. You are also one of them. And those unwritten contracts, at least to me, are the things that bind us. And if they're ever called into doubt, they send a shudder through an organisation that actually pursues its missions through belief and trust in each other. If executing military operations where life and death is a realistic prospect simply becomes a transactional endeavour based on the money you're paid, well, armies of the past have fallen apart on such loose DNA. Our force is bonded through words that I know of attracted some derision or criticism, or let's just say the ambiguity has caused confusion. But for good or for bad, mateship is a key thing 
that plays out there. For good or for bad, belief in each other and caring for each other in difficult situations is a major thing. Just like when I go forward, I'll tell you who my shareholders are. They're not just my commander, who to the best of my ability, I will faithfully and loyally try and do my best. It's not just vertically downwards to my organisation to try and lead well and do my best, even though on some days I might fail or disappoint or make mistakes. It's also to the people of Australia and the nation. It's an understanding that we are part of a national institution and we're given special authorities and expectations in who we represent and what that means. And so as I stood with that mother on the terminal at Richmond, as her son came to land in the C-17, this was also about our obligation to her and parents like her and what it means. When you deploy in operations, it's not just the romance and the excitement of the mission and the circumstances, playing of the great game. It's about real people and real lives, not just soldiers' lives, people's lives, the people who live where we are, the people we're trying to support and trust. So when we take our soldiers forward, there is always a family behind every one of those individuals who, whether they join the military or not, are part of that sacred unwritten contract and obligation. So it helped me, even though it burdened me greatly, and my colleagues who are leaders too that wear the uniform, to know that our accountability extended to all of those people and was equally important to us. You know, I do my best now to stay in contact with some of those families and talk to people where I can. I know many soldiers now, without being paid for it or needing to be tasked, also reach out and maintain that support. Accountability isn't just about a job and technically what you should or should not have done in a battle or a circumstance. Accountability is also about that obligation to those people around you. As their leader, you also, like a medal might do, give their mission purpose and meaning. Your leadership, even after the mission is concluded, never ends. People want to know that the belief and the genuineness in your commitment to them and the mission you fulfill means as much today as it did back then. Or you discredit what they did and what they were there for. Now, there might be strategic complexities or political complexities or circumstances that happen in the grand scheme of things. Those are always there. But on the ground and in the moment, when you're staring people in the eye and the decisions you make involve lives at home and abroad, well, you tend to crystallise your responsibilities and you focus on them. And while we might not always get our decisions right or in hindsight, and reflectively do the things we wished had done better, I've never once ever doubted that the leaders I know in our Defence Force share with me that same serious commitment to our people and their safety and their welfare, their families, but also feel deep, deep regret about the families and people that were affected by war and in which the places we served. I want to be part of a defence force and I am part or was part of a defence force where compassion was a key part of who we are and what we do. You know, when I was a, a younger person, it seems like a long time ago now, I commanded Australian forces on the border of East Timor. 
sounds relatively simple now compared on the things that I did since. But my headquarters was atop a hill. We used to look out over the Timor Sea. The sunsets were beautiful. And that fort in Balabo was less than 100 metres away from the small building where a group of, of journalists were shot. I think it's called the Balabo Five or the Balabo Number. And when I served there, that building still stood. The bullet holes were still in the wall. It was largely unchanged from that moment and what we did. And while there was an interesting mission and lots of things happened, one of them was, uh, you know, the events of 911, Greg. I was there one night in there and, and how did I first learn about 911? Well, you would think being part of the big defence organisation I am that secret communique would come in and, and we'd all be alert and, and things would go off. But actually my wife, who at that stage was in England with our kids and her parents, uh, rang me up in the middle of the night and you know, drew my attention to the TV and so I, I became aware of those events there in, in those moments. But in leadership terms and in accountability terms back then in, in East Timor and, and in that moment, you're always learning lessons about how to do the right thing and how you impact on people and how that has an influence in people and, and in their lives. And uh, for that particular mission and, and what we're doing, my unit had been raised almost from scratch to deploy there. It was called 4RAR. It was a fairly new unit. When I first turned up, it was less than 100 people. Good people, but perhaps forgotten. In the space of six months, we'd grown to a battle group of 1,500 and had deployed on, on operations in East Timor and we were doing our thing there. That unit became the genesis for what became commandos and then what is to commando today. And back then there was a deep interest in my unit about becoming special forces and what that meant. And you know, at that time, there was a lot of interest in the symbols of being an SF. So when will we get that special rifle that only SF carry? When will we wear the special beret with the symbol on it? When will we get badges and things that show that we are special? And my message to them then, as it is now, is that symbols like that only have meaning if you give them meaning. They are like reputations. Their value can be high or they can be lowered, depending on what you have done, if you wear or associate with those symbols. The symbols we wear are built on the same stuff. The belief in them the reputation from them, the pride in them are only renewed on a daily basis by the people that wear them and represent them. Right? And it doesn't matter whether it's a symbol on a beret or it's a pink tutu. If you behave in a way that brings respect and pride, professionalism, and excellence, then people will think as highly of a pink tutu as they will of a winged dagger. And we should never lose sight of the fact that it is we, people, characters, teams, families, and Australians who through our daily actions 
give the true meaning to what things are and what we do. They can be brought undone by a lapse of judgment, but they can be raised to the most inspirational high points by the actions of the people that were or associated with them. And so as a long answer to your difficult question, Greg, I would say that good leadership, inspiring leadership, is about helping people to be the best that they can be, to believe in themselves and to build a life in the people that you work with that is based on those little actions that make an important impact, even if you don't recognise it at the time. When I was a Deputy Chief of the Army, I was once sent to give a presentation on behalf of the Chief to a small town in Western New South Wales called Gerildery. And a helicopter took me there, as you do in defence, and we flew endlessly over these wheat fields. I'd never been there before. And my chosen topic was Sir John Monash, because I understand that's where he grew up. And I turn up in this town and people had come from afar to hear this fancy pantsy guy who turned up there. It was funny because we turned up, the helicopter was a Kiowa. It was on finals in terms of uh, fuel and he had, <laughs> he had to drop me and go, right? And so he did and he drops me at this terminal in the Wheatfields. There wasn't a sign that said you are at Gerildery. It was just Wheatfields <laughs> and like a, a, a shed. And I'm standing there in my service dress. The helicopter's gone. There's no one around. And I'm going, boy, I hope this LZ was uh, in the right location or I'm in trouble. <laughs> anyway, about 15 minutes later, up drives a ute with a bloke in the back wearing a, a hat. He says, uh, g'day, mate. How are you? Right. Can I help you? <laughs> I said, oh, I'm you, here. You lost me. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm, I'm here to actually, you know, give a talk tonight in Gerilda into this. I said, are you? <laughs> okay, better jump in. Anyway, I found myself in Gerilda and in front of the good people of the town and, and doing my guest to do a service to Sir John Monash. And they're very proud of him. He is a great Australian. And I'm reading out this speech and I'm offering my reflections because I never knew Sir John. I'd never been to the town before. My background was academic. It was reading a book. It was drawing some lessons. Uh, and I got told there that Sir John's beginnings were from a, a school teacher that one day spoke to the parents of Sir John and said, we think this young man has got some potential and perhaps you might like to consider him going to another school in the big smoke down in Melbourne and see where that follows. Now, the story, at least that I was told, was the parents did just that. And it made me reflect on that, that small act of faith and goodwill by that teacher who, to my mind, is unnamed, that just saw a spark in that child that others hadn't seen and made a call to the parents to suggest something that I would offer had incredible consequences, positive consequences for Sir John and for Australia. I recall back to my beginnings as a young, insecure kid that wanted to join the military and a teacher who berated me for not believing in myself and encouraged me to apply for something I didn't think I was good enough for. And 
isn't so many things in our lives, less about grand statements or amazing decisions by incredibly important people at high levels. And really, for all of us, and I'm talking to you all now as humans, as people, as fellow citizens, isn't this really about how we treat each other and respect each other? Isn't this about daily, just the small choices we make that help others to be better? It might be an act of support. It might be a small note of encouragement on the way to school. It might be a hug at the end of the day. Or it might be standing alongside someone where something's gone wrong and they just need to know that you're there for them. These small acts matter. They build a foundation that makes us better. It connects us in ways that are emotional and powerful. They matter as much to leaders, chairs of boards or huge companies or nations as they do to families and to groups. I carry that lesson with me now in terms of the sort of leader I'm trying to be now. And each and every day when I look in the mirror, First up, I initially see regret, and it's a bad habit I've got into. I think of memories about decisions I could have made better, things I should have done, mistakes I made that I cringe by. I was never the best SAS entrant. I was never the best young officer. I made more mistakes than the average person. But around me, I always had supportive, amazing people that saw into me and believed in my humanity. And so two points I want to finish on here, Greg. One of them is, what have I learned by all the wars and the conflicts and the operations and the places in which I've served around the world? All too frequently, we focus on the things that make us different, different language, different culture, different country, different gender, different this, different that until we've got such a long list of differences and things that actually we forget that the thing that makes us most common and most relatable is that we're all people. It doesn't matter whether you're in a valley in Afghanistan or an alleyway in Iraq or in a village in East Timor. Those parents love their kids as much as we love our kids. Those people worry as much about their future as we do, 99.9% of the human race is common. We're people. All those other differences in that 0.1% cause so much misunderstanding and differences. What do good leaders need to be on top of all the other things I've burdened you with today? Well, I'm a slow learner, but at least today... I'm convinced that we also need to be great communicators. Communicating across differences, right? And helping people to understand each other, to respect each other. If you can get those dialogues going the right way, then all sorts of complexities and differences can be worked through. You have to communicate effectively across cultures. Now, my history could be wrong here. I'm going to get into trouble, Greg, but... I think it was Eisenhower in World War II at the start of the war who said D-Day invasion about to happen. He had to give a vision statement or someone gave a vision statement if it wasn't Eisenhower. And so in the romanticized version of history in my mind, he chose two words, 
that was meant to resonate across millions of troops from different nations who would serve in different battlefields for years ahead. And that vision statement was both simple, but it was compelling because it meant the same thing to everyone, no matter their differences. And that vision statement was simply, take Berlin. And everyone knew, doesn't matter whether their orders were good or bad, whether the battle had been lost or won, every morning when they woke up, even if they had no leadership and no direction, they knew in what direction to turn and they knew it was worth it despite the sacrifice because taking Berlin meant the end of the war. And so people believed in the purpose and they knew how to follow it and the direction and leadership were augmentative to how they fulfilled that mission. All of us strive to have the clarity of purpose and the motivational simplicity, the elegance of a statement like that in our own organisations that mean the same thing to our people, inspire them all to move in that direction and do those things. Leaders have to be great communicators. I don't mean brilliant public speakers, by the way. I mean talk to people authentically so that the lights come on and they understand. That's so important to the complexity we face and what we do around the traps. In the 21st century, Greg, if I offer a a big teaching point, it would be that the world that I know, which is the same world, by the way, that you live in, is no longer defined in terms of black and white. It is not linear. It is increasingly complicated, unpredictable. Everyone knows that the world is getting a little bit that way, don't we? You don't need to be an ANU scholar in international relations to arrive at that conclusion. And so with the complexity out there, the risk, the uncertainty, we're all worried, you know, uh, our prime minister, other governments, shareholders, what's going to happen next? How do I foresee that? Well, when it comes to war and conflict, I will tell you that it's become grey. It's not like World War II. And I don't mean that in terms of a comparison of violence or scale or anything. What I mean is, is that the often conflicting aspects of what is a good decision, what is morality, what is right, what is the truth, those are being openly now manipulated, influenced and swayed. And so now more than other, any other time that I'm aware of, Being a leader in those circumstances has become very difficult. It might appear from the armchair that many circumstances have a clear black and white right or wrong. You should have, you should not have. In my experience, it's far more complicated than that. The weight of factors that have to be taken into account, both known and unknown, are getting more and more complex. What do I think we all need as leaders? We need a new compass to chart our direction forward in the 21st century that learns from all of this complexity now in this grey type environment, all of these contradictions we face and difficulties. Counterinsurgency is one aspect where it's often counterintuitive. They attempt to turn you against yourselves, to undermine yourselves, to bring out the worst in you. But there are equivalents to military counterinsurgency in the business world and in international relations and why things are going now. We all need to professionally strive as leaders to help each other to come up with a new toolkit. 
for how we are become effective decision makers in the 21st century from learning from those challenges. The simple toolkits of the past no longer suffice. I wish I could tell you what the answers were, Greg. I don't know, but I do tell you that the strain and the challenges of the existing toolkit to these things has probably, in my opinion, reached its high watermark, and we need better tools. Not necessarily different ones, but better ones for our times. Just explaining the complexity, helping people to understand it, and to make better choices in a difficult, complicated world is what we all aspire to do. I've yet to come across any leader anywhere who doesn't want to do the right thing and succeed. I haven't. So let's work together and help find better ways. If goodness is to come from the war crime inquiry, then let's use it as a case study, an example to learn from. Let's talk to each other honestly. We may not know the answers now, but let's be tenacious in searching for those answers. Let's pursue it with an intent of gaining knowledge and wisdom and understanding on how we can do better. Not to simply look at it as a potential crime or an alleged incident, but let's look at it as an opportunity to learn from. I mentioned earlier about the mistakes I made and how they made me who I am, the medals that I wish I could wear that display the lessons I learned that make me who I am. I think as a nation as well, I do wonder, should we be trying to do this in this moment. Why? Because it's a positive step. It's a constructive step. It's a step we can all take together. There is a Japanese outlook, if I pronounce it correctly, I think it's called wabi-sabi. And in broad, I believe it talks about the fact that we all have fractures in ourselves, in life, imperfections. And that all too frequently, people look for things that are perfect. Are you a perfect leader? Are you a perfect person? Do you have a perfect life? Right? And if it's not perfect, the imperfection is seen as a negative. Well, I'm yet to come across a perfect person or a perfect leader. I don't have a perfect life. In fact, I'm so imperfect, I stand before you now with so many fractures and rough edges on me. I'm surprised the children don't run for me when I stand in the room. Let's be proud of our imperfections where we acknowledge them and we learn from them. And like the outlook of Wabi Sabi, let's turn those fractures into repaired seams of gold and let's see those seams as the stories of our life and the lessons we've learned on our journey to just being better people. And so let me finish on a, a story that builds on the East Timor theme. And that story is that what I found when we first turned up there and the preceding commanders and forces before me had found is that when we first arrived in East Timor, a lot of children in the villages actually used to run from us or keep away from us. That is because the uniform represented in their mind a symbol of fear violence, doubt, intimidation. When we arrived, the children were a little timid around us. 
watching us from afar, a little reluctant to come forward. They've been told we were meant to be good people that were there for their protection, but we had not yet earned their trust. When we left the theatre, every Australian soldier that I saw had a bunch of kids around them, everyone, smiling kids, happy kids. They just reach out and hang on to the uniform. I don't know what happened, but the actions of our people in that place, each and every little action that they took, regained that trust and changed the image of a military uniform from an image of fear and trepidation to an image of safety and protection, of trust and of belief. And if people would ask me, what did you achieve in that activity? And there'd be a thousand answers to that question, but at least personally to Jeff Sangerman, that is the most potent symbol of, of what we achieved. That is the uniform that we represented and the way we supported the people on the ground were a positive, good, constructive type effect that children who, let's face it, are authentic, perceived and believed in and trusted in us. That's the army I was a part of. Those are the soldiers, sailors and airmen that I am proud of. Those are the memories that are wonderful and inspire me and make me believe in what we've done and why. Let's not be too quick to forget those stories because we still have good people. Sometimes they make mistakes but their commanders stand by them. And I today remain completely accountable for what I did or failed to do for those missions and forces that I commanded. And I know it to be true for the colleagues and counterparts that I know. Jeff, that's got to be one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever heard. And I'm sure this nation will ever hear. However, what's traditional here in this podcast is the finale. Going back all those years ago, 18-year-old I think it was, going through those gates down at Portsea. What advice would you give that young bloke, Jeff, now? The advice I'd give myself would be believe in yourself, do the right thing, and bring other people along with you along the way. Where have I learned that lesson most powerfully, Greg? It hasn't been as a general. It's been as a father. Being a father trying to be good as a parent, trying to help my kids to be the best at who they are is a challenge that we all face. The leadership at that level and in that role, I will tell you, is the foundation on which our Defence Force is built. The young men and women of our Defence Force come from the families of Australians across our nation. And it's the values, it's the inspirational leadership, it's the love of those families which build the characters of our people, characters that you should be very proud of. My mission as a parent and as a father, there was many birthdays I was never home for. Many times when I felt too much of a load was passed on to my, my beautiful wife. And now I'm trying to be the best dad I can be. And you know what? When you're a dad, you're understanding the mistakes. You're encouraging your kids to take steps that they might be reluctant to take themselves. You're having the courage to tell them the truth about things, even if that truth sometimes is a little difficult. But more than anything, the unwritten contract between a parent and a kid is 
in a broader way, the same unwritten contract I was talking about with our soldiers. And that is it's a form of unconditional love that may not be talked about much, but everyone knows is always there. And if you've got that in the background, then nothing can ever break you apart. So on that, Jeff, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations.